Welcome to part two of the Vince Surf episode of the Series B Show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones. In part one, Vince discussed his time kind of understanding that he wanted to be in technology, interacting with the first computers, working on the Apollo program, and some of his views on the internet and his role as Google's chief internet evangelist. In part two, he talks a little bit about what scares him the most about the internet and potential solutions to address his fears. Um, the idea of computer programs that can write themselves as the future of technology. And we spent a good amount of time talking about income equality in the U.S. and how technology can help you get a solution and not exacerbate that problem. Um, we also discussed learning models around academia in the U.S. and kind of what the future of learning will look like in the world. And then we talk a little bit about some of the fun topics of what his bucket list is, uh, who do you do dinner with, dead or alive, and some of his favorite uh, things that he enjoys in his spare time. So what specifically, I guess, you know, you really being like the expert, if you had to pick anyone who really understood the internet, um, you know, up and down, it would be you. What's your biggest kind of the area within that space that concerns you the most? Is it the dark net? Is it, what is, in your opinion, kind of the, the scariest um, situation that could happen, kind of, in, you know? Well, the one thing which is, uh, should be a, a concern to everyone is increased dependence on the network mm. for uh, functionality. Uh, it may, may mean that if it is brittle, then our dependence is, puts us uh, in a, at a disadvantage. And in some very odd ways, the U.S. is the most vulnerable user mm -hmm. of the internet because we depend upon it so heavily. Mm -hmm. And we at Google, our entire business is based mm -hmm. on that. If the internet isn't there, our business doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So there are, there, this, this fragility and brittleness um, is a risk factor. And that, of course, motivates uh, my interest in making it more secure, making it more private, sure. yeah. uh, and making it safer. This is exacerbated by the invention of the Internet of Things. Right. They're programmable devices that right. can communicate. Right. And so, and they proliferate. Right. And there's right. a larger and larger number of them. If it's light bulbs and you know, locks and light switches and appliances and so on, the numbers just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And again, we're relying on them. My biggest worry is not exactly that they're networked, though. My, honestly, my biggest worry is that they are dependent on software. Mm. And we haven't learned how to write software that doesn't have bugs. Mm. And so when things fail to work correctly because there was a bug, um, it may cause a great deal of harm, especially if it was your pacemaker, right. pacemaker right. that didn't work, or maybe right. it was a surgical robot or something. So my bigger worry, frankly, is uh, how to make software that is uh, very high probability of working correctly. Uh, and I'm looking for aids for the programmers to help them avoid making mistakes that can be exploited by the bad guys or which just simply fail to operate in really hazardous ways. Right. So right. that's my biggest worry. It's not that they're networked that I'm worried so much about. It's the fact it's that they're programmable. Human, human error human in error. the form of bugs yeah. and software. Yeah. So what tools do you think will, what will the tools look like that can prevent this? Would it be you know the whole machine learning, AI conversation? 
or do you think it's actually better frameworks for QA, et cetera, for code? Actually, even it's coding. I mean, the, all of the other stuff that you mentioned uh, will be important, but things like AI and, and machine learning and everything are based on software, which itself right. can have bugs. Right. On top of which, machine learning has the problem that it learns what you teach it. If you teach it the wrong thing, you may not know you're teaching it the wrong thing, but if you teach it the wrong thing, it'll make bad decisions. So I'm still more worried about programming environments where I, don't, I really want um, this little piece of software that looks over my shoulder when I'm writing and says, uh, you made a mistake on line 25, that's a buffer overflow problem. Mm. Or you just read a variable that never got stored, any, you know, nothing was ever stored into it before you read it and used it, mm -hmm. therefore you're gonna branch off into some you know, unknown right. place. Right. I want help with my programming. I would like to be able to make assertions about the program which this underlying support system can either refute or support. Interesting. So if I can say, you know, there are no buffer overflows in here, and it should say, yes, there are, look at line 75. It's not artificial intelligence necessarily, but it is um, software that is cognizant of what the program is trying Got to it. accomplish. <clears throat> Would the next step be, is it possible, you believe, that if a program can tell you, hey, I see you made an error, you know, is this something that you intentionally meant to do? Could you get to a point where it actually writes a good amount of it? Or, or fixes it. So the answer is yes. I think you can get away with some of that. Um, this is especially true if you have a very high-level specification language that is machinable, mm -hmm. then you may be able to get software to go write code that does whatever it was you expressed. Right. And so we have examples of that. In the early days of Lisp, which is a programming language for artificial intelligence, uh, one of the programmers did a, a, a list program called DWIM, which stood for do what I mean <laughs> instead of do what I told you. Uh, so I think there's some hope there, but it's going to take some very smart people to develop the tools that will allow us to get assistance from these smart computers that can look at all kinds of different combinations of cases, you know, run through, mm -hmm. exercise the code with different variables that we would never have time to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Let's talk, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about kind of the intersection of technology and income inequality, um, which I know is something that you, you care about. Um, you're, you're involved in a number of humanitarian kind of initiatives around the gender gap, the digital divide, uh, the changing nature of jobs, et cetera. Net-net, do you think the power of technology will ultimately close income inequality or do you think it'll exacerbate it at a high level and then kind of, you know, what's, your, what's the rationale behind well, that? Well, for a time I had hoped that the technology would empower people in such a way that the disparities would be reduced. I'm less clear on that now because I think the disparities are not a consequence of technology as much as they are a consequence of business models mm. and the way in which we reward people. Mm. Uh, so I mean, I pretty, it's pretty clear, for example, that equity ownership uh, in an organization that is a public publicly owned resource means that the parties holding large quantities of stock are going to be rewarded as, and it particularly um, in a, a highly nonlinear way if right. it's a very successful company, right. Google being an example. Right. And I, I don't for a minute, um, what I, I don't um, uh, disagree that the founder of a company should benefit from having done that. Mm -hmm. And so this is not a, a, mm -hmm. a, a, a uh, an indirect 
complained about Larry, right. Sergey, Eric, and right, everybody right, else right. who has really made this company happen. And of all the companies I can think of, Google is one of the best at allowing the um, employees uh, whose work makes the company successful to participate in that with equity mm. uh, involvement. But if you look at the history of, uh, of um, asset ownership over the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, some of the disparity is exactly a consequence of large amounts of stock uh, in the hands of founders and uh, less so in the hands of the people who are actually uh, making the company right. work. Right. And so I think um, companies that are either employee-owned or uh, that uh, work hard to share equity among the employees that make the company successful might help to shift some of that disparity. But I'm just an engineer and I'm not an economist. <laughs> and so You're a smart I, guy, I think. I, I know, well, but I don't know if that's necessarily the right answer. But you can see that that has contributed in some significant degree to uh, the income disparity here in the U.S. I guess a piece of it is, a piece of that will be solved by just uh, competitive dynamics. You know, to attract the top employees, you're going to have to distribute equity mm -hmm. to compete with the, the person trying to take you know, yes, talent away from you. However, nowadays, there's a big dynamic of technology being able to scale to the certain point where you have a company with maybe 20 or 30 employees, like a WhatsApp, being acquired for 20 plus billion dollars. Mm -hmm. How do you address that piece where you just need less people and the value is going to just you know naturally accrue to yeah, a smaller you, number of people? You do the math. And the, yeah. Well, this is partly the craziness yeah. of the value of stock, which is a very, very funny computation, right? The value of a company, its capital value, is the product of the last trade times the number of shares outstanding, mm -hmm. or not even outstanding, total number of shares right. in the company. Right. And you would never realize that amount. You can't. I mean, if you tried to sell all the stock in the company, very amount, it would go to zero. Right. So um, there's something very funny about those numbers. And it, it would never work if you tried to sell everything. But if you sell stock at the rate at which the market can absorb it, you can actually harvest that value. So I don't really know what to, what to tell you about redressing mm -hmm. that uh, odd disparity that it's a consequence of the way in which we value companies and the way in which we con uh, uh, compensate people. There, there is um, an argument that's being made now that one of the worst decisions in the world was saying that the most important thing the CEO can do is increase the value of the company for the shareholders. Mm. For the shareholders. So mm -hmm. think about this for a minute. The shareholders are not actually making the company successful. Mm -hmm. They're betting that the company will be successful. The people that make the company successful are the people who work at the company. Mm -hmm. And yet, in some very bizarre way, they're not the ones that are benefiting from this particular um, share value effect. Right. And so we're back once again to saying, how do I shift some of the benefit of people's valuation of a company to the people who make it valuable. What would you advise people who are, let's say, in middle America, they're far away from Silicon Valley or, you know, the, the coasts? Um, what are some practical things that you think we should be thinking about from, you know, just from a U.S. perspective around income inequality? So I wish that I had better thought through answers than I do because I'm not an expert right. in this space. Uh, one obvious thing, though, I want you to think about uh, our working lives for a minute. Uh, lifetimes are getting longer. 
we may live to 100 years if you're born, you know, in 2016. So that means that you may have more than one career, uh, may have to have more than one career. So it's not like you go to school, learn a trade or learn something, then work for X number of years and retire. I think that model is now um, not uh, reflecting what reality will be. You may live to 100 years old, you may work for 70 of those years, and you may wind up um, uh, needing to learn new things in between. I mean, here at Google, we're constantly learning new things because everything keeps changing. We right. keep inventing new things, new ways of doing things. And so we have to keep learning. And so I think that the model of, um, of innovation that destroys jobs, which it does, mm -hmm. also creates jobs. And the real issue is can uh, the people whose jobs have disappeared because of innovation learn new enough things so they can do the new jobs mm -hmm. that come along? That's part of the secret of making this work for everybody. Mm. But it does mean that you can't just go to school once. Mm -hmm. It means you have to keep learning. And especially we have to build, I think, support systems for people whose jobs disappear as a consequence mm -hmm. of innovation mm -hmm. to help them uh, find new jobs that, uh, or even train them and prepare them for new jobs that have been created. You mentioned a point earlier which kind of ties into what you're talking about now. And so, um, Academic studying, learning, pivoting, etc. The uh, idea is not just academics. I mean, uh, one thing I will point out is that the um, programs in the past, which uh, allowed you to be an apprentice mm -hmm. and then a journeyman and then a master, uh, that notion is very powerful because learning by doing mm. may be the strongest reinforcement you can get, and so I want to be careful not to give people the impression that you just go back to school. I think learning has to have a mixture of new information, maybe academic in style, followed by or including some kind of hands-on, how do I apply this in order to make it stick. And that's, Sorry, and that's what, no, no, and that's, that's where I was going. My yeah, question was, okay, so do, yes. do you, what do you think about the formal kind of education system or how we think about academics now? And how do you think that may, based on your, your vision of the future, change over the next decade or so? I think it has to change. I think that even though we talk about four-year programs and degree programs and everything else, uh, this sort of just-in-time learning new things in order to adapt to new work and new responsibilities and new challenges means that we'll have to have a way of delivering maybe smaller components, smaller units of, of learning. That's why certificate programs start to look interesting. Universities, uh, I think, especially the ones that are starting to explore an online space, recognize an opportunity to support a much larger population than the one that could be physically on the campus. Mm -hmm in smaller units of learning, uh, which we would then recognize as being part of a, uh, an enhanced training program or evidence of, of mm -hmm. learning. So I think that, that we're going to see some changes in the way people choose to learn so that the cycle time is much quicker to applying what you've learned to what you need to do. Got it. Got it. And do you think that um, existing institutions will have the ability to engage people that are kind of taking this micro learnings and implementing it at a micro level? Do you think they'll be able to get to? It's a very good question. Uh, some universities are turning in that direction. Stanford, Georgia Tech, for example, has an online master's in engineering program, which I, if I'm remembering the numbers right, is a $5,000 investment as opposed to, I don't know, $30,000 mm -hmm. investment, but it's the same, the same classes. Mm -hmm. 
And you might argue, well, what do I do about questions and so on? And that's what they have TAs for. Mm -hmm. You can have a TA still serving people remotely. Or even groups that get together because they're all taking the same class. Uh, this is still not a fully worked out right. process. Um, but I am I'm, at Stanford, for example, uh, some of the instructors are saying, I'm going to record the lessons. You can watch them as many right, times as right, you want. Right. And when you come into the class, we're all going to work together right. to see how to learn how to solve problems. Right. So it's part of the flipping of the normal classroom experience. Uh, and by the way, the scaling is interesting. Suppose you had 10,000 students in the class and they each paid $100 for taking that class. If I did the math right, that's a million dollars. There aren't very many instructors who can claim that they're teaching million-dollar classes, right. and yet that's not a crazy number right. when you think about the if the system can scale. Right. I think the underlying piece there is that there's still a certain level of credibility given to brand, having a Stanford brand, yes. having the PhD, having, you know, so how do you reconcile those two where people want to see that certification? So, for example, if you have that class of 10,000 folks or 100,000 folks, will they still have access to the pipelines to like the, the top companies creating the most economic value, as we discussed before? Well, this is a, we have the same problem, by the way, in the academic world where there's questions about publication and where did you publish and did you publish right. online or was it published in an you know, mm -hmm. old line, you know, mm -hmm. hard print journal? Uh, there is this uh, looking backwards uh, evaluation um, and I think that there, this may turn into generational. It may be something we have to uh, intentionally change our minds about uh, how we evaluate people's work and success. Um, I'm still a believer in our ability to adapt to that, but it can be very slow in some cases. I think some of the best papers I've read have been online mm. uh, in publications that never physically are printed. Mm. And you have to convince the people in the committees in the academic space and the people who are hiring and evaluating to recognize value in uh, with new metrics mm -hmm. than the ones that we've typically right. applied in the past. Right. What's your um, perspective on the U.S. current kind of standing as an innovator within the world? And do, how confident are you that we'll be able to kind of maintain our, our position over the next decade or so? Well, yeah, I think we have a couple of challenges here. The first one is that the rest of the world is getting access to information it didn't used to have, mm -hmm. thanks to the internet, among other things. Right. And what that means is that uh, if you think about the distribution of intelligence, uh, it's more or less uniform across the planet. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Now, how many people are there in the U.S.? 330 million people. Mm -hmm. How many people are there in the rest of the world? 7.3 billion people. Right. Do the math and figure out if there's a uniform distribution of intelligence in the world. You got a lot more smart people outside right. the U.S. Right. than there are inside. The more access they have to information, knowledge, education, and everything else and experience, the larger number of them are capable of doing work, which is not unlike what we do here. So I don't think that you can uh, comfortably sit down and say the U.S. has a mechanism for just staying ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, it has an incredibly well-oiled um, philosophy of investing in research. That's why I'm very proud of the National Science Foundation, DARPA, NASA, you know, DOE, and all the others. I mean, we seriously invest a lot in, in curiosity-driven research, and that served us extremely well. Mm -hmm. Others will eventually get there, too, I presume. So uh, I think that our tactic has to be figuring out how do we use the intelligence and experience 
and expertise of other people who are not in the, in the United States in order to make it mutually beneficial. So we all benefit from this. Right. Right. It's not clear to me that this notion of being ahead of everybody, consuming more than everybody else does, generating a higher GDP, buying more things or accumulating more things is necessarily a measure of uh, betterness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it also has smacks of a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. I, I get more stuff than you do, and therefore I, I win. Right. But what if we figured out how to create a world of abundance? You've seen books about mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. from Peter Diamandis, for example. So I want to draw your attention to the politics of plenty versus the politics of poverty. Mm -hmm. If we can solve the politics of plenty, everybody... There's enough for everyone. If we ever get there, then a lot of the tensions, the disparities, and everything else begin to diminish. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about you and some of the things that, I mean, you've accomplished. There's, there's very uh, few people that have accomplished what you've accomplished um, in your life. I'd love to hear about your bucket list. What's left <laughs> for Vince Cerf um, in terms of things he'd love to do that he has not had an opportunity to do just yet? Well, I confess to you that I don't exactly have a bucket list. I have, I have regrets that I hope I can redress. For example, I used to play the cello, and I got distracted by computing and, and believed at the time that it was a binary choice, which was a foolish, you know, teenage decision, right. which I regret because it's such a magnificent instrument. So uh, I hope I'll make myself go back to that at some point. Uh, I've also discovered uh, over the course of my life that uh, you can learn something from everybody, and I haven't met everybody yet, so I have a lot of learning to do. Okay. Uh, and I value that tremendously. I don't feel a huge need to travel any more than I already do, which is about 80% of my time. Uh, so that's not a galvanizing force. I am deeply curious about certain things, and the most recent thing is biology mm. and how do how does life work where did it come from how does it evolve and how does it work so i just bought the fourth edition of a very famous book called the cell mm -hmm. it's about the insides of cells and mm -hmm. i will tell you that it's new york city in there <laughs> it's just mind-boggling all the things that go on in time inside of a cell and so that's a focus of attention, avocationally speaking, is to try to learn more about that. That's awesome. So you mentioned um, you'd like to meet more people. What's Who's one person alive you haven't met that you'd love to do a lunch with? Oh, my goodness. And who's one person you know who's passed away that if you could choose anyone, uh, this would be the person you would choose to well, have lunch or dinner does, with? But does it have to be a person that I haven't met? Because there are people that I have met that I'd like to spend a lot more time You'd like with. to double-click on a little bit? Yeah. No, sure. Okay. You, can, you well, can put it out there. I'll tell you, one of them is right here at Google, and it's Ray Kurzweil. Okay. Uh, the futurist. I, I enjoy so much my uh, my conversations with him. They're, they don't happen often enough. Right. And I don't see Eric Schmidt often enough right. either, although I saw him twice this week, which is <laughs> shocking. Uh, and, you know, people, people who have gone away, well... Um, Actually, Richard Feynman, who was one of the most um, effective quantum theorists 
Uh, he's the guy that figured out the Feynman diagrams, for example, and the integrate over all paths and everything else. He had a kind of an innate uh, understanding, I think, of what was going on. His lectures uh, are legendary. Mm. And I never met him. Mm. And uh, I'm not sure that I would understand him. I think my, <laughs> my math may be a little weak. So if there's a bucket list, it's to... Uh, refill the mathematics bucket well enough mm-hmm. to understand uh, quantum physics and cosmology better so I could have a productive conversation Got it. with some of these people. You're a big wine, wine guy, huge wine guy. Two sentences. The first is, um, if you had to sum up your love of wine in, in one line, what would it be? And your second is, what is your, uh, what is your favorite wine? Okay, so I think wine is such a complex uh, experience mm-hmm. that uh, you'll never grow tired of exploring all of the possible things you can do with a grape. Mm-hmm. And, and so I enjoy sampling wines from all over, all ages and everything else. Favorite wines uh, on the... Um, White Burgundy side, Le Montrachet is absolutely the best you can get anywhere. You can go home and die, it won't get any better after that. <laughs> uh, and on the red side, boy, that's a lot harder. But uh, I have to say that uh, Beaulieu Vineyard, uh, Georges Latour, Private Reserve, 1969, mm. and 1953 Chateau Latour are two of the most astonishing experiences I've ever had and I'm mm. sure that you know your listeners will have their own uh, but those two really stick in my mind to do it for you Vin thank you so much it was a pleasure to have you on the show uh, we learned a lot and uh, thank you for being you and yeah. doing, contributing what you've contributed to uh, to us in the world it's, it's really a pleasure so well, thank you very much I wish I could do more and of course I rely on everybody I meet to help absolutely and that concludes part two of the Vince Surf episode of the Series B Show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones. I hope you learned as much as I did from one of the most influential people in the history of technology. Uh, there's more to come on the Series B Show, so stay tuned. And always remember, be you, be true.